Okay, hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and tonight we're getting into the fun stuff. We're going to be talking the scriptural support for Pananastasism with Dr. Scott Smith. This is going to be a fun time, so stay with us. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. To what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them, and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Alright guys, so uh, tonight we're going to get into the scriptural aspect of Pananastasism with Dr. Scott Smith. Thank you for tuning in with us, we're really excited to have you. Uh, once again, if you would like to leave any comments or questions, you can do so in the, in the um, comments section or on Facebook. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter as well. You can email me. Um, my Twitter is going to be the Real J Gibbs. And uh, if you want to send an email with a question or a comment, you can do that as well. Send it to GibbsJ1086 at gmail.com. And uh, um, you can do it that way as well. So if you want to send a voicemail, um, this is something, it's an, a new feature. We haven't used it yet, uh, but I think we're going to get into it um, and use it hopefully here pretty soon. And uh, the way that you can access that, just go into your podcast app or go to anchor.fm and type in Talking Christianity, and uh, you can just le click the Leave a Voicemail link. We would love to use that, and uh, we'll be able to play your actual voicemail in the next episode. So uh, tonight, just like we did uh, in the last episode, we're going to be able to share some of the comments and questions from the audience uh, from last week's podcast. So um, Dr. Smith is going to be able to address some of those, and hopefully, um, I, I think there's going to be some challenging ones in there as well, so uh, that'll be good, but uh, let's get over to our screen so we can see Dr. Smith. Hey, Scott, it's good to have you again. Hey, it's good to be back. All right, so we're getting into it. This is going to be episode number three, part three, uh, for our series on rethinking the extent of the atonement. Um, I think we've been building up to this. And this is this is supposed to be the fun part, getting into the scripture, right? Yeah, well, I mean, there's so much scripture to get into that we're, there's no way we're going to be able to cover everything in even these podcasts we're doing. But yeah, I'm definitely going to hit on some some major scriptures this evening. Awesome. So I think the goal is um, to get to the scripture that actually supports Pananastasism. But before we get into that discussion tonight, uh, let's go ahead and clarify what we have been discussing with Dr. Scott Smith. Um, where he holds a view of the atonement that includes two aspects. So that one would be universal and one is particular. So there's two aspects to the atonement. Uh, the first is going to be Christ's penal substitutionary death, uh, which is for all people. 
and has the universal effect of righteously allowing God to resurrect everyone out of their penalty for sin, which is physical death, and so saves them from the, uh, the first death. If you missed podcast number two, um, that's where Scott gives his scriptural argument for why physical death should be seen as the legal penalty for sin. And then secondly, uh, Christ's blood gets applied particularly to believers only, which washes them clean of their sin and puts them in a covenant relationship to God, saving them from God's eternal expression of wrath against them in their resurrected state, which is the second death, and instead is giving them eternal life. Do I get all that right, Scott? Yeah, that that sounds good. All right, so great. I For our new listeners, I would recommend uh, going back and listening to episode one and two if you haven't already. Uh, that just gives some of the historical background, some of the things that lead up to what we're going to get into on the scriptural side tonight. Uh, but this, the name Pananastasism was actually coined by uh, Dr. Scott Smith, and it, this is the name that he coined to describe the view of the atonement. Um, which you actually describe in the last two podcasts as being a transliteration of two Greek terms, which actually means all resurrected. So now we're going to look into the scriptures. But my question is, where are we going to start with this? Well, uh, first, I want to reiterate some of the scriptures noted in the last podcast that either explicitly or refer to the results of sin and that there's salvation for you. So we studied a few things last time, but I do want to mention specifically in a little more detail, uh, one that states levels of salvation quite explicitly. And I mentioned these before previously, which is first Timothy 4.10. So it says there for this, for to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And I have discussed this before, but just a few more observations to make about this verse, I think, are important. One, the distinction I made previously was that especially means there is a salvation above or beyond that of the salvation referred to of all people. Uh, He is a savior in two different respects, so to speak. Uh, The fact that the second special salvation utilizes the same verb that the first is in this. So um, he, it's, it's, it's just the is verb. He is the savior it, that for all men, it says. That's a universal salvation. Uh, that means both salvations are a reality, though varying in degrees. If one wants to make the verb indicate merely potential for the first group, then that same verbal force would have to be true of the second group as well, since the one verb is controlling both ideas. And scripture is clear that believers are not just in a potential, but an actual state of salvation. So it's not the idea that Christ is merely standing in a position of being a savior for all men, because one stands in the position, but never does the act of saving for the object that's being noted is not then truly a savior really in any way to them. So there must be some type of level of salvation that he gives to all, and that's what my view is trying to uphold. I see. So, um, so. I'm going to interject as we go through here, just like we've done in the last couple of podcasts. Uh, one thing that's going to be a little different 
is uh, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot a little bit more. Um, and, and really, I want to quote as we go through uh, some of the different listeners and the questions and comments that they've, they've sent based off of the last episode. Uh, this, this is a comment from a listener, Roger Thomas. Um, let's see, he says, uh, here's what Roger Thomas says. He says, the Apostle Paul seems to be saying here in this verse that God is the Savior of all men positionally, but ultimately he will not save all men. So in reality, he will not be the Savior of all men, but he will be specially the Savior of those who believe. Example, there's a man on the river back, uh, river bank, it should be, willing to save two men from drowning. He is the Savior of both men. Only one chooses uh, to have the Savior save him. Therefore, he is specifically, specially the Savior of the man who believed the Savior was willing and able to save him and allowed him to do so, unquote. Now, Scott, how would you respond and answer this this particular point and, and question that he's bringing up here? Well, I, I think his illustration shows the problem with the view. Well, actually, his, his statement even, because first... Uh, I think he said his name was Roger. Uh, he has to qualify his statement by saying, what was it? So in reality, he will not be the savior of all men, Yeah, which is in direct opposition to what the verse actually says. Yeah, it kind of seems uh, like to me he's, it's kind of a vague, a vague statement. You know, he is the savior, but he's, he's only actually the savior for the one who wants him to save him. Yeah, he's he's trying to keep that first part merely potential and and not actual, which is what a potentialist would do in in their viewpoint, uh, or a provisionalist. Uh, but the really, I maintain that Christ is not just provisionally positioned, so to speak, on the bank watching people drown. He's not just there standing there waiting for them to call upon him. He is actually um, their enemy because they're against him and, and he, in their sinfulness, he's against them. But he is going to jump in and rescue them from drowning. He actually jumps in, saves them out of the river of death, so to speak, being the lifeguard. But once they are saved from their drowning... Uh, they're standing on the bank together, and Christ is saying to him, "Look, what I did for you. You know, let's not be enemies anymore, because you cannot win against me. So trust me with your life." Yeah. And then those on the bank who refuse and instead attack him, vilify him, slander him, and all such, they face his wrath still. They, they haven't restored any relationship. So and, it seems like I'm gonna I want to interject here real quick, and I and then I want you to continue that. It 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 seems like. Really, the distinction is there. there's two aspects to a person being saved. One is you you are saved. That would be the, the physical resurrection. And, and then the second aspect of being saved would be glorification and, and everything that leads on from there. But I know that we're probably going to get to that. And, and I'm sure that we're going to get there, especially when we, we get a little further. But um, um, how, how am I doing with that so far? Yeah, well, I, I guess when you're using the term saved, I think you got to say what you're saved from. So you said saved, which would be the glorification, which that's true, but it's really saved from the wrath, uh, the expression of the wrath, and instead of that, you get the glorification. Right. So right. That you're, but uh, other than that, yeah, that's you're, you're following along with 
with what what I'm trying to express yeah. the panastostic view would be. Now, in this verse also, additionally, there's this contrast is explicit that all men is the larger group beyond the believers. And so it encompasses the rest that that is the unbelievers. So the, the categories of people are already given based off the fact that the one category given is believers. That means the other category is inclusive of all men otherwise who are therefore the unbelievers. So this demonstrates that there is something salvific for unbelievers, which argues against the particularist view, but it is not to the fullest extent as the believers get. And also this verse argues against universalism of salvation in total or the plenarist view. Uh, it does not even allow for an understanding that ultimately everyone believes because some universalists would say, well, ultimately people end up believing, you know, maybe post-mortem after their death, but they, they ultimately end up believing and therefore are saved. But this verse, it's giving this distinction between types of salvation for the types of people. And if everyone is destined to believe, and they're not, then the latter part of the statement really becomes pointless, as no distinction at all would even exist to bother noting two levels of salvation. It would merely state yeah. that God is the Savior of all men, period, universally. There wouldn't be any reason to have an especial salvation for believers if ultimately everyone ends up believing anyway. Yeah. Now, there's one point that was brought up to me in, in that if, 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 Jesus, if Jesus really is the Savior of all men, as we're saying it, that there— and there's a resurrected body of the unjust, and Jesus saved them, then then that's final. They're they're going to spend eternity with with Jesus, with Christ. Um, so how would you <clears throat> how would you kind of respond to that particular point that there's you're either saved or you're not. There's no <clears throat> there's no partiality in salvation or progression within salvation. Well, I'd answer that that. That that's not correct because for one, this shows that there's a progression in this verse. That there's a level of salvation that's for all men, and there's a greater level of salvation for believers. So, it's true that when Jesus saves, you're saved. But the question is, what is He saving you from with right. each part of the process? So, the first part of the process is penal substitutionary atonement is saving them from their physical death, yeah. making them back into a whole person, a, a, a body, you, new body, resurrected body united to their spirit. And then the second part is they are saved from his wrath, which is the second death. Okay. So there's, there's two, two things that need to be saved from. And that, and so if you look at salvation, only from the perspective of final salvation, the full meal deal at the end, and miss the fact that there's these, this process that involves a couple levels of salvation, then you're, you're going to miss a bunch of information in Scripture, um, which we're going to talk about some tonight. So in, in, in that regard, that's, that's directly related to um, your primary point in 1 Timothy 4.10, which is that if there isn't something salvific God does for all people. And by salvific, it, you're really dealing with one of the various sin issues, since those issues are what we need saving from. Then that verse becomes 
meaningless, like you're saying in the comparison, it has to set up a special revelation for believers only. Um, and if, if you have nothing real happening on the first half of that comparison that is salvific, I would say, then there's nothing real for the second. But we do know that there is something real being discussed. So the comparison is about the two levels of reality and how and who God does actually save. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. But. Uh, another, just one more point on the First Timothy 4.10, um, that you can't make the claim that all people here refers to all kinds of people. That's one of the common maneuvers that a particularist will try and make in interpreting the word all in, in a lot of the universal passages, actually. Uh, but it, that doesn't work here because the all's clarified. It's not saying all kinds of believers. It's saying that there's an especial salvation for believers. It's already giving you the kinds by classifying the one kind as believers. It therefore classifies the other kind that was first talked about of all men as unbelievers, those that don't belong oh, to I the see. smaller yeah, subset. I, I kind of remember that uh, when I was reading your dissertation that you make the distinction that both classes would be would would fall under that whole category of all, even if you wanted to make it a um, an all that's just of all kinds. I mean, it's still covering every category, and it's not a particular. Yeah, it's subject. still an unbeliever versus believer distinction that's being discussed. So, all right. So, where are we going next? What's what verses next? All right. Uh I think another key set of verses is Second Corinthians five fourteen through twenty one, and. I'll kind of walk through these. Um, I'm primarily using the New King James for my translation. For those that want to know what I'm reading from, uh, I'll tweak that a little bit when I get to one of the passages. But okay. Um, so Second Corinthians five fourteen says, "For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died." So. Now, the context from back in verse 11 of this passage is, is all people. For Paul there states, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So he's, he's talking about the persuasion of people in general, uh, the, the lost that he's out there witnessing to. Um, the go gospel witness is going about persuading people for Christ. And it's because Paul knows what terror people will face otherwise. So I think he's ultimately referring to the the wrathful judgment there. So here in verse 14, he's referring to the fact that all people are under the judgment of death for all died. And this universal state is confirmed by the fact that if Christ's death, death was for all. So, and the Greek word there is the huper, which is translated for, which can mean substitution, but may merely mean for the benefit of, or on behalf of, and in this context, it really doesn't matter how you take it, because the point is that his death had some beneficial aspect for all people. So having established that Christ died for all because all were dead, we get to his purpose statement in verse 15, where he says, And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So the intention of Christ's death is so that those who live should live for the one who died for them. I think this is a twofold statement. First, it gives the grounding of the gospel. So Christ died for everyone 
so that you, who are still living and hearing this good news about Christ's death, ought to respond and live for the one who did this for you. And then secondly, the eternal life he will give to those who do choose to now live for him is guaranteed to fulfill this eternally, that we will be living for Christ eternally. Okay. Um, now, I've got uh, another another comment that came in, a question that came in uh, from Dave Mitchell. It's in a Christian forum on Facebook. He says, now, Jesus paid for the sins of all. John 2, 2, I think 1 John 2, 2, I believe is what he meant to reference. 1 John 2, 2 is clear on that. He goes on, he says, his, his atonement is of no effect to those who have not mixed it with their faith. Hebrews 4, 2 is very clear on that. Now, how would that tie into uh, the relevance of kind of what we're talking about right now in regard to the two different classes of believers and non-believers? Well, he's 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 going to, uh, you said Hebrews 4, 2, right? Yes. Um, which says, for indeed the gospel is preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So that's not really specifically uh, talking about whether or not atonement has been applied or not to people in any way. What it's talking about is when this gospel message was heard, and the fact that they did not hear it, didn't weren't obedient to to the call of it. It doesn't it doesn't profit them, and the reason it wasn't profiting is because they didn't mix it with faith. So yeah. they they don't get the regeneration and the washing of sin and the covenant relationship with God and that side of things if they don't obey the gospel. Uh, but so that's. That's dealing with the second half of the equation, yeah. so to speak, uh, is how I would say it. it. It seems like to me that in Hebrews 4, 2, when, when the words gospel and the word are used, that Dave is substituting those two words for the atonement. So the, the atonement is sort of what he is applying as the reception of the gospel and the word. Uh, when when that might be, just if I could look at it, that might be the, the problem there. It's not... It's not assessing whether or not they are accepting the atonement to be applied to them. They're accepting the gospel presentation of the word of God applied to them. So they're believing the gospel. But um, Dave, yeah. if, 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 if I've misrepresented you anyway, any of you guys who I'm, I'm commenting tonight on this episode, just let me know um, if I'm taking it out of context or if there's some things that you would change or reword um, or you know even even build off of what we're talking about here. So Dave, just let me know. And, and in one sense, it's I would agree that the resurrection is a salvation from death, but does obviously for an unbeliever that ends up not being a profitable thing for, for them. But it's yeah. still not it's still true that they were saved out of the death. So just because you're saved from one thing doesn't necessarily mean you're not you're going to be saved from something else that is coming down the pike. And in this case, there's the wrath of God that that's going to be in their face if they haven't if they haven't heard and obeyed the gospel, so that it will profit them. So, no, I hear you. Well, um, uh, I think we've got so kind of to transition from that. We we were going from verse 15 to 16. I kind of cut right in the middle of where you were at right there. So 
I'll let you keep going. Yeah. Oh, starting at verse 16, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. Uh, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, I don't want to take too much time here talking about the new creation we are in Christ have become. Uh, that's obviously an important thing. Uh, it's We become this new creation, and we have not yet completed that yet. First John 3, 2 mentions that. But the uh, all things have become new is future looking for for the in the present state. We still have our sinful flesh. Romans eight discusses this. We have been created new on the inside. So uh, we see the new person discussed in Ephesians chapter four, the new man we're supposed to put on. We're still awaiting the finishing of this new creation on the outside and in the resurrection. And it's uh, and even for freeing ourselves from the sinful flesh that, that tempts us and so forth. So it's the following verses that are, are more relevant, I think, to our present discussion. So verse 18 uh, continues on. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So in verse 18, Paul is addressing believers, saying we have been reconciled to God and he has given believers this task of a ministry of reconciliation. What does he mean by this is, is the thing, and that's answered in the next verses. So verse 19 says, that is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So here in the content uh this is the content of the ministry he's talking about. That is, what reconciliation are we to be ministering about? Now recall that reconciliation is the same idea as atonement, or it's the idea of appeasement, and we discussed that in the first podcast. So our ministry relates to what God is doing for the world. Romans eleven fifteen 15 uh, mentions this also. And that reconciliation has to do not according to, uh, not accounting their trespasses, their infractions to them. So here's our legal issue that I've been talking about of violating God's law. And instead, God is accounting all those transgressions to Christ. There's the idea of substitution. Notice Paul's use of them for the world here. And now he's not denying that he and, and the believers uh, in Corinth that he's writing to also have this reconciliation, but his focus is on those others who are not part of the church. That is the rest of the world that they're ministering to, because this is the ministry he's referring to and the message that is com- that's been committed to the church to give out. And so we see this in the final verses, verses 20 and 21, where it says, now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So those who are in Christ have this ministry, and that makes us representatives for Christ, as if God is pleading to the world through us. And so imploring uh, that we are to do, uh, 
we are to do for people to be reconciled to God. So in verse 19, we have the objective reconciliation. God's already appeased the world in accord with the legal transgressions of his law through Christ. But now there needs to be a subjective reconciliation that must occur. That's an appeasement of the relationship between the people and God. So there's two reconciliations, one that's objectively done by God through Christ to the world, and the other that's subjectively done by ones uh, who heed the call to be reconciled to God, which is, you know, believing the gospel like we just talked about from the Hebrews 4.2 passage. So the second one hinges on faith, that they make that reconciliation personally, the, the, object, the uh, subjective reconciliation. The objective work of making Christ sin for us is so that um, he, it's a grounding for the whole message to the call to be reconciled. Uh, and then, and with, if someone heeds that call, they then become the righteousness of God in Christ. So we can see how these two reconciliations relate to the two salvations that First Timothy 4.10 talked about. I see. Uh, so the, the question I would have is, how do we know that these two levels of salvation and these two reconciliations uh, should each be tied to the two deaths that you've stated are the results of sin? That'd be my first question. Well, that's a case that needs to kind of be built systematically across scriptures, but the scriptures aren't without some explicit statements. Yeah. Uh, we know what issues we're dealing with, physical death and the judgment that follows, which is the second death. We talked a fair so bit about that we can... last time we can go to an explicit statement in scripture and not make it an implicit thing when it comes to this? Well, I'm, I'm saying yes. Okay. <laughs> I am saying <laughs> that, actually. <laughs> okay, so uh, now, go ahead. Did you have something you wanted to add on that? The What's implied is, is there's these passages that we're seeing where it's talking, you know, some passages talk about, you know, these two levels of salvation, like 1 Timothy 4.10 did. Here in 2 Corinthians is talking about the two reconciliations, and so and one of them's for the world, and the other one is to those who heed the call yeah. to be reconciled. And so, what what some of those things deal with sometimes has to be inferred a little bit. We we know in part because, like here in the Second Corinthians passage, that if you heed the call to be reconciled, then He's made the righteousness of God for you. As far as okay. the people that were the objective reconciliation, that was answered earlier in the passage where it talked about Christ died for all because all were dead. So we, we see those connections within the passage, um, but there's, there's still other explicit passages, I think, that, that talk about the two, the two issues and so forth. So... So I, I wanted to piggyback off of that because I, one of the one of the questions that our uh, listener, who is this? This is Malachi Sewell. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. In in response to this particular categorization, we've got we've got the believers and then we have non-believers. Um, he, he sent a response to me. He says, concerning the second group, what will they be judged on? And then he goes on. He says, the moment you say quote unquote their unbelief then you're back in what he calls Owen's razor. And, he's, and, and I would ask you, Scott, how would this be relevant to our discussion when we're, we're making a distinguishment between uh, the, the different aspects of reconciliation 
We're making a, a distinguishment between uh, different aspects of salvation. Uh, we're talking about who the application of the atonement is actually effective for. So how is this, how is this relevant for us? Um, so let me see. I think you sent me his comment. So he, his issue was that the, that if you tie unbelief to what they're being judged upon, then when he says Owen's razor, I'm sure he's talking about the, the trilemma that, that we discussed last week. Yep. Um, so they're being judged. They're not being judged upon their unbelief. Uh, in, in my mind, they're being judged on their, for the second part of it, for their lack of righteousness. So there's the penal substitution pays for God's penalty for sin, which was physical death. And they're resurrected out of that, but they're still supposed to live righteously yeah. for him. See, and, and I think, yeah, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt your thought there. Well, and, and so if if they're not doing that, then they're being judged, like I showed last week, based off nature, their design. Mm. God had designed them like that styrofoam cup I had last week to be righteous. If they aren't that, they're under his wrath. That's what they're yeah. being judged. So one's the legal judgment. The other one's a natural judgment. See, and I think this is such a... It, it, it's it's little aspects like this that just kind of open it up for me. It's like, gosh, man, you know, you get that, you hear that question so often, like, well, did Jesus die for the sin of unbelief? You know, it's like, well, yeah, he did. He died for the sin of unbelief, but that's not what people are judged on. They're not judged on whether or not they believed or didn't believe. They're judged based off of their righteousness versus Christ. And if they believe you're, you do, you have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, and right. now you're judged off of Jesus' righteousness as opposed to your own. So I think I, that's such an important distinguishment. It's like, well, did, what do you do with the unbelief there? Is that a sin that Christ died for or didn't die for? And is that atoned for? If it is, then it's like, well, it, you know, you're going to heaven. Christ atoned for the unbelief. You're going to heaven. So anyways, do you have any? And, and I would say, no, Christ atoned for your unbelief. You're getting resurrected out of your penalty for it. That's what, <laughs> that's what happened. Now, if you don't have the belief, then you don't have the accounting of righteousness, like right. you said, and you don't get all the rest. So it's a consequence of the unbelief. It's not the unbelief directly that's being judged, that's, so to speak. That's a good point. Um, that's a good point of distinguishment. So I'll let you keep going. Uh, let's see. So, so uh, some other passages, Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 and actually I'll start back a little bit in verse 26 to pick up context slightly, but it says there, but now once at the end of the ages, he, Christ, has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So the parallelism, parallelism of verses 27 and 28 here in Hebrews 9 help answer the two levels of salvation and the two reconciliations that were, in, in verse 27, we see the two issues, death and judgment to follow. So 
he's appointed man once to die or to die once, but after this, the judgment. And we talked about this some last week. In verse 28, we see the two solutions. Christ bearing the sins of many parallels the first of the two issues, the death, the appointment to die. And uh, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 5, the many means all others besides Christ himself, or it's the sins of the world. So it would be erroneous to limit the sin-bearing off this verse, as this verse is just uh, contrasting the one Christ with the many, meaning everyone else. While the eagerness, uh, eagerness of those seeking Christ's return parallels to the second of the two issues, the judgment, which one avoids judgment and instead finds salvation for what would have been the effects of that judgment, so the second death. Another passage, uh, unless you have any questions about that passage, I'll move on. Uh, to the, the no, next I passage. don't. I think I I think that's pretty clear. You still you've you've got the many you've got for salvation. Uh, the appointment, and I mean, yeah, I I, th I think this is, I don't have any questions there, so I think we'll just go to the next one. Uh, so Ephesians 2, 1 through, well, it's really 1 through 9, and then verse 13, I think I'll cover, gives clues to the connections also from, it's talking in the from the perspective of believers, so, and a lot of scripture does that, but we have these other passages that bring in the world, so we know that there's aspects that relate to them, too. Now, let me say I'm not going to go into detail here on Ephesians 2. And I don't have time to do that, but if you're interested, you can find it on pages 332 through 350 of my dissertation. So I spent almost 20 pages uh, on this passage and in detailed arguments on Ephesians chapter 2. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So these first three verses, and really verse five also that follows here in a second, uses a, a figure of speech called prolepsis to discuss how living believers at the time Paul was writing to them relate to this grand scope of God's plans for them. So, and really the plans for people in general, not just believers, but again, believers are kind of the focus of this passage. So according to Daniel Wallace in his Greek grammar, the proleptic use, it describes an event that is not yet past as though it were already completed. So that is, it uses a past tense verb form to indicate a future destiny. We see this a lot in prophetic literature, where God will make a statement of fact that's as if it's already passed, but it's really a future thing to occur. Yeah. And in my dissertation, I give eight reasons why to see these as proleptic uses in this passage. And note a number of commentators that, that see that likewise. But here is what the passage is saying when understood this way. Here it says his readers were dead in trespasses and sins, which proleptically refers to their yet future physical death due to being under the legal penalty of sin. 
He also notes that, assuming uh, they are now believers, they were previously, by nature, children of wrath, meaning they had been in a position of a future destiny of God's wrath because of their sinful nature. So we see the two issues here related to sin that I've talked about. We see the death and the wrath aspects uh, noted in this Ephesians passage. Death being first death, physical death, and, and wrath referring to the second death. So I've got two things for you. I'm going to inter- interject. So okay. Two things. One, a comment and a question. First, the question from me, when we're talking about the proleptic use, um, to me, this this makes me think of the term, uh, what I've I've heard it, I've heard it worded as the already and not yet. And you, typically it's associated with uh, Acts chapter two and Joel three with uh, when 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 Peter is quoting and saying, hey, this is that which uh, the prophet Joel spoke of. And he's speaking about the events that are taking place in Acts chapter 2. Now, is that kind of related there? Is that the same kind of use? It's all, it, it is happening, but it's yet future. And I know that I know that's two completely separate uh, <laughs> kind of topics there, but I don't know. I don't know if that's the right use for it. Well, I, I'm not, I don't think the already not yet is exactly considered a proleptic use because generally speaking, already not yet is, an, is a case where the argument is trying to be made that there's some aspect of it that is present already and then some aspect that is yet to come yeah. about. Whereas a proleptic use tends to be more, it, it's not yet already, but it will be. Yeah. So in other words, these living believers are not yet dead. They, they haven't died yet due to sin, but that is what the penalty is that they were under for their trespasses and sins. And, they would have been under the wrath of God had they remained uh, in their nature as children of wrath. But then he goes on with the good news uh, in the following verses here. So this is why believers are the focus. I got one more comment before we get oh, into the okay, next that's right. Just say you had another comment. So we've got <laughs> Brady Hornstra uh, in the Bible Brodown uh, Facebook group. If you are not a part of the Bible Brodown Facebook group, you need to join that thing. By the way, they've got a podcast as well. Uh, you should listen to that podcast. It's 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 good. They get into some good topics and the converse, conversation flows real nice. But anyways, Brady, uh, Brady says, quote, in my view, God sends people to hell to save uh, to save people postmortem. They will be in hell, but only for a time. In the end, all will be reconciled to God. So we've got an already and a not yet perspective here. Now, what would your response be uh, to Brady there? Well, it sounds to me like he's he's saying what I just argued that First Timothy 4.10 uh, basically states can't be the case, that he's basically saying that ultimately everyone ends up believers, ends up reconciled, so to speak. Right. Um, and so there would therefore be no special salvation for believers because uh, everybody's all on equal ground. Yeah. Uh, no, I think so that's a good so point. So he's a universalist? Is that is that uh, his position from what you— the comments you've seen from his uh he actually it, it's kind of a strange position he he sent me a big long uh response and then a couple of links um and and then a couple of links to a couple different books on this but he called it like um apoctosis or i it, it was something like that um oh in a so yeah 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 i remember you forwarded me that and i clicked on one of the links and just glanced at it and yeah. it was yeah so it seemed like it was a a 
view relating to the all things being reconciled to God in in the full sense of what we think of as reconciliation, so to speak. Uh, and I, I think that I just don't think you can read scripture that way. I mean, yeah, yeah, maybe you can pull out some verses, but then you have to, to me, you have to ignore the other verses. So, yeah. Um, and, and I think that's a good, a good thing to point out there. Well, and he even said, well, we don't believe in universalism because we, we think there's, 99% of people are, are going to be saved. So there's 1% of people that are absolutely. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't, dude, I don't know what to do with that. So anyways, let's okay. keep going here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see, where was it? Verse four, five and four, five and six of Ephesians chapter two. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in these verses, uh, being under the judgment of death, he, he starts off in verse 5 with that. Uh, Even though we are under that judgment, God has made us alive together with Christ, which is another proleptic statement about our future resurrection. Uh, the Greek word translated make alive together with is a compound form of the word used elsewhere in scripture to refer to the giving of life where initially one's, you know, like one's birth or at the resurrection of, of other dead that occur in scripture. So the compounding is just adding the idea of the togetherness. So the fact that we as believers will be together with him in this state. So that makes the statement about our coming resurrection which handled the first issue of physical death because of our sin. Now, again, believers are the focus here in this particular passage, but notice the odd interjection, by grace you have been saved. So odd because it, where it's placed is, is interesting, it, and he's going to repeat the statement, but, but different in verse 8, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, but in verse 8, it mentions a connection with faith, which is missing here in this verse. So the location here is, I think, extremely significant. He is saying, by God's grace alone, regardless of faith, people get the made alive part from the death that's due them. And being believers, they get their resurrection to be together with Christ. Then having split the resurrection with this little interjection, he goes on and proleptically refers to our exaltation with Christ that we're raised up together with him and our positioning with him made to sit together. And I I argue that the the raised up doesn't refer to resurrection, but exaltation for two reasons. One, the fact that it would be redundant to just said made alive and then have raised up be again a reference to resurrection. Now, when you say made alive, I know a lot of people are going to hear those words and say, well, this, this guy's saying that, you know, non-believers are made alive like Christians are, you know, and, and I think you're making a distinction that it, it's not a, a spiritual being made alive, like you're a dead spirit being made alive spirit. You're talking about the resurrected body here. Is that right? Right. I think that that's what that's a reference to. Okay. Uh, so, yes. Uh, 
The second thing is, is the idea of exaltation fits the theme of Ephesians chapter 1, where we see the inheritance we have with him mentioned in verses 11, 14, and 18, and Christ's exaltation above others in verses 21 and 22, and and then in the following verses here in, in Ephesians 2, 7 also. So the final point is also that we sit with Christ, which echoes back to what was paired with Christ's own resurrection in Ephesians 1.20, so the previous chapter, and relates to our position in this ruling family now. And the reason for all this is given then in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So verse 7 reveals one reason God saves people is to show his grace and kindness to those in Christ. And then we get a second grace related to salvation statement in verse 8. So we, we just he just mentioned, for by grace you're saved. And then now in verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So like the grace that was regardless of faith statement that followed the resurrection statement, this statement follows the other two points of exaltation and seated with Christ aspects that were mentioned in verse 6 that finalizes you know, what a believer has in eternity. And so it, it shows that, the, that this whole plan to be saved by grace through faith, that plan was a gift from God. He grants the resurrection to all. Uh, again, this passage is focusing on believers, but... The other passages point out the other point. And then exalts and positions those believers only, making faith critical to the final outcome for, for their good. Uh, so again, we're getting back to that profitableness that we saw in Hebrews 4.2 that we looked at earlier. Uh, so faith is what switches one from being under the wrath that was mentioned in, earlier in this passage in Ephesians 2 to this exalted state. Now recall that my view of atonement has a particular application of Christ's blood for believers only, and we see uh, this in the passage that goes on. Uh, the passage goes on in the verses here to discuss how the Gentiles are kind of included in with these Ephesian believers are brought into all this good stuff by the blood of Christ. And we find this mentioned in the passage in conjunction with the Gentiles, linking them to the promises of Israel in verse 13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there's the, the hints at the cleansing aspect, and I think it's actually talking more about that covenanting aspect of the blood here. And then he follows through with more discussion on joining this family in through the rest of, of Ephesians chapter 2. So... Before we move on, I, I, I can move on to the next passage, but before we do that, uh, any further thoughts or questions regarding Ephesians chapter 2 here? Yeah, I think basically um, the way that I, I'm understanding it is, is that when Paul's writing to the Ephesians, he's, he's trying to point out um, the different af aspects of what comes with your faith in Christ and the blood of Christ being made a partaker of all of these different things, which which would be additional blessings. And, and, and uh, you know, when it comes to your, your re people would say your rewards, your inheritance, your reign, 
your crowns, all of those things that, that come in addition to salvation. But that's all a part of being in Christ. Um, now, how am I kind of understanding that right? How would you sum that up? Yes, yeah. And, and I, I guess for me, the main point I want to point out is just like the other passages we've seen in First uh, Timothy 4.10 and Second Corinthians chapter 5, this passage talks about the two aspects of death, dead and trespasses and sins, and being by nature children of wrath. So it talks about those two issues that we have, the big issues that, of judgment that have occurred. And then it also talks about the two aspects of the solutions in the sense of the being made alive portion, which is by grace yeah. alone, and then the exaltation and the sitting together with Christ. So the inclusion into the family and, and the granting of all these great things, that is the salvation by grace through faith part, which is what we think of as salvation, we, you know, because ultimately that is the being fully saved is that you're, you're getting freed from death and you're free from his wrath. I you see. are then saved. I see. So, so we're still, we're just driving home the point that there's, there's, there's a, there's two distinctions to be made here within right. what salvation is and, and, and what, what's entailed in both of those. Yeah. And it's, you know, like I said, it's looking across various scriptures to see these, the fact that there's these points made because Paul's just making statements about these, but they're purposeful statements in the way that he's organized his, his statements, I think. And, yeah. Splitting up things very particularly to to emphasize certain points. So, all right, I think I got it. And where are we going next? We are going to go to um, at least the last passage that I have prepared for this evening. Anyway, um, okay. Romans five, Romans chapter five, verses twelve through twenty-one. This is the so. Boom. What was that? This is a big one, Romans 5. <laughs> Romans 5, yes. So there it says uh, in those verses, starting verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. So in these first uh, few verses, 12 through 14, notice the definite emphasis on death that came from Adam, and that is physical death. People died throughout history be despite the fact that they had not transgressed the same way that Adam had. His sinfulness passed on to his offspring, and because of Adam's offense, uh, which is noted uh, in the next verse, Verse 15, we see the contrast here. But with the free, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So verse 15 sets up an understanding, I think, for verses 16 through 19 specifically. And this is critical to seeing what's being said. In this passage, Paul states in verse 15 here, there are two things 
the grace of God and the gift by the grace that comes through Jesus. The grace shown is also the further means of delivering the gift that related to grace. And these abounded to many. So not all here, but many, because as we shall see, not all get the gift part of this. So verse 16 says, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the, I, I like to say grace gift, because that's the word used there, the grace gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. So here I'm going to quote briefly from my dissertation on page 299. I say, through the one sinful action of Adam, judgment leading to condemnation came upon many. However, through the many offenses of many people throughout history, God brought forth Christ and manifested the grace gift leading to justification. I think that's kind of the point of what this verse is trying to say here. And what is most critical to see for our discussion here is that the gift by grace that is the grace gift, is what results in justification, that is, our righteousness. And it's assumed uh, here that the reader will understand that these points are related to the many people mentioned back in verse 15. So uh, we're talking about a, a many group here, not an all group. And, and I'll point out why that's important here in a second, because the passage does switch to using the word all in this passage. See, I was going to ask that. I mean, those are the distinctions typically when you're when you get into this conversation. Uh, the the provisionalist is going to show you know how death was uh, brought into the world by one man and it affect, affected the whole world, and then you see Jesus being the ransom, the the atoning sacrifice for the world as well, the second Adam. And uh, that would kind of be the the contrast there that that the of of the first Adam, the second Adam, Adam and Jesus, and kind of what the effect is. But I think that where the provisionalist and this is the the stance that I took, I think where it's lacking is uh, where we're going to get into this distinction that you're going to look at right here between all and many. Yeah. Okay. So verse seventeen says, "For if by one man's offense death reigned." through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So here again, physical death is mentioned again as a result of Adam's offense, but this will not stop the victory uh, of Christ, for he gives an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. So in this verse, we have revealed that the gift by grace that was previously mentioned, that this grace gift that was twice mentioned already, now here it's explicitly stated as the gift of righteousness, or the, that, that is the gift, righteousness itself. So this ties into Romans chapter 4, so the chapter right before this passage, where it was made clear that righteousness comes by faith, and faith is what makes one, therefore, accounted righteous. So twice now in, in verse 15 and then here in verse 17, we have the two things noted, grace and gift, or the grace gift. Just two things. I like the way you These put both, that. I like that, the grace gift. Yeah, well, that's because that's the wording it uses. I mean, it, it, 
if you read the Greek, it's it's the uh, literally speaking, the grace gift is the second part. There's grace itself, and then the grace gift is a secondary, a, a second aspect. So these both match out to resolving uh, verses 18 and 19, the, these two aspects, grace and the gift of righteousness, respectively. So this is where the matching up of some elited ideas in this verse is important because one thing in these passages is one, one thing that makes this passage challenging for translators and interpreters is there's some verbs missing in the Greek. So it's, you're supposed to supply those from the context. And, and so ideas and concepts are being, deleted that is missing out of out of it that it's expecting you to kind of fill in and how you fill those in is going to affect how you interpret the, this to some and extent. along those lines we've got a comment from chris remy in soteriology 101 he says josh your idea uh, your ideology of payment is too western christ died the righteous for the unrighteous he tasted death for everyone death for everyone uh, the penalty for sin is death, and the one who fulfilled the law did not deserve death, which would be its legal demands, and thus he became a curse for us. Our debt of sin demanded our death, and so the payment was his death who didn't deserve death. This applied to whom God chooses, which is who places their faith in him. Forgiveness of sins becomes a choice by God uh, by means of the blood death of Christ. Now, what do you think about that, Scott? Um, well, I'm, I'm not sure why he's saying your ideology of payment is too Western, because it sounds like what he described is exactly what you and I would <laughs> say almost perfectly. I mean, I, I agree with him. I mean, he tasted death for everyone, uh, matched the legal demands, became a curse and all that. The only part I would not agree with was his statement where he said, this is applied to whom God chooses, which is who placed their faith in him. And I'm saying, no, this is applied to everyone for the resurrection. Yeah. The part that gets applied by faith is the fact that they won't have, be under his wrath. So, <laughs> No, that's good. I, when I read that, I was like, I, you know, I'm gonna put, I want to share this because obviously I think, Chris, you and I are in agreement more than you might think right here. So um, if, you, if you watch this, um, let me know what your thoughts are. Show me where we where we may actually be in disagreement because I'm I'm not seeing it right now. But anyway, Scott, I'll let you keep going. Let's see, where was I? Um, <laughs> Sorry, I, I, that's okay. Yeah. So okay, so we had these elited ideas in the verse, and verse eighteen uh, has this issue. Um, so. Verse 18 talks about, I would, I argue that verse 18 talks about the results of grace, not the gift of grace, but grace. And verse 19 talks about the results of the grace gift. And, it, but it's challenging again, like I said, as the Greek is missing these verbs and expecting people to pick things up from context. Now I've chosen the, the NA, the NASB, the NASB translation uh, for this verse because for reasons that will become apparent here in a moment. So there it says, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Now translations like the KJV and the New King 
King James Version, they'll, in my mind, erroneously put in here the phrase, the free gift. They'll say the free gift came in this verse. But as I just stated, I, I think if you're following the parallels of the two things, the grace and the gift by grace, verse 18, the result of what verse 18 is going to talk about here is the result of the grace portion itself. And the verse 19 is the result of the grace gift. So that's why I say I don't, I don't think that, that that is an incorrect view of what is elided from the verse. If anything, you should add grace came not the free gift came uh, to this passage, but the NASB didn't, didn't add anything. And most other major translations like the NIV and the ESV don't add anything of that nature in there either. But the problem with the ESV and the newer NIV, so the 2011 edition, which follows the ESV, because the 1984 NIV is actually different and I think actually quite good here, which we'll discuss in a moment also. But in those, in the later NIV and the ESV, instead of saying justification of life at the end of the verse, they put justification and life for all men. But there are three distinct problems with that translation, I think. One, not all men gain justification. Only believers do. So if that was intended in the statement, it would be in error. And, but we'll also see that human justification is not what this passage is actually referring to here. So our justification of righteousness is not what is being referred to in, in this passage. Number two, there's no and in the Greek. It's better to translate it justification of faith because there's a genitive relationship between the word, for the, the word life is in the genitive case and it's in relation to the word translated justification there. So it's not two things. It's not justification and life. The of life is related to the justification in a more distinct way, like the other translations point out, like the NASB and King James, New King James. Now, finally, third, translating it that way here is um, the fact that this word for justification is an unusual Greek word. It, it's in the same it's cognate group as our words for justification that we talk about when we're talking about being made righteous and being justified, you know, standing before God justified and those kinds of things. But this word is actually a little different than what you see in other places like that. And this word has given interpreters issues. Uh, you can read about those issues in my dissertation in the passage where I talk about Romans chapter 5. This verse is not talking about the making of people righteous. It's talking about the justification for God giving life to all men, i.e. the resurrection. I mean, that's implied by the fact that resurrection is the getting of life. Uh, and then in chapter 6, Paul goes on to talk about the importance of resurrection in relation to the believers. So resurrection is within the context just following this as well. But it's making a factual statement that all people are able to overcome death because, and death, again, being one of the two main issues of sin, uh, overcome death by God bringing them back to life, and, and he's able to do that because he's justified in doing so. 
because Christ has paid the penalty. Now, I said that the NIV 1984 edition is translated well here, and so I'll read it. It says, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life to all men. So when I when I discovered that it had translated that way, I thought, yeah, they actually figured this out better than most translations. And then they went and changed it for their later translations. So, <laughs> uh, so God is saying, God through Paul is informing us about the fact that Christ's one act of righteousness, his death, is what justifies life coming back to all men and handling the death problem that is half of our issues that this passage discusses. This is exactly what my pan-anastasic view of atonement is trying to, to point out and is stating. And it fits in line with the other passages that we've already gone over tonight. So the second issue then is addressed, focusing on the natural issue of humanity. So verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So here we have our natural issue that I discussed last time, that we are all sinful. And it says in this passage, it, so in verse 18, it said all men. It was universal. In verse 19, here it says many. It's not all. And these distinctions, even though sometimes they're important in this passage, Sometimes people will kind of gloss over them or try and say, well, it's just it's just there for variety, uh, to give some variety to the writing. But there's there's intention behind the, the usage of what Paul's saying, of what's universal and what isn't. Uh, let's see what... Now, wrath isn't mentioned here, but what is mentioned is the, the opposite of that, so to speak. It's, it's what... Is the reason there is no wrath. We are made righteous uh, through this man's obedience. And it, in this particular instance, this is maybe the only instance, but uh, it's at least a instance where it's not talking about the fact that we're just accounted righteous. He talked about accounting of righteousness in chapter 4. I see. Here, it's talking about uh, it's a different verb. It's talking about being made righteous. And that occurred when, once we are resurrected, that we're complete. We will have our, our new body and we've already got a regenerated spirit. So those that are believers are actually remade righteous just to be, to reflect him through eternity, just as he intended all people when he originally designed us to be like him. So then we end with the last Two verses, 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So grace is abounding much more than the offense because the offense brought death to all men. So there's this universal fact that Adam's brought death to all men through his offense. But grace does more because grace brings life back to all men and it further brought the grace gift to believers, so righteousness, allowing grace to reign through the resulting righteousness of ours into eternity 
where our life will continue on and the second death is no longer relevant to us. So he overcomes the one thing that Adam did in totality, plus he adds on top of it some extra blessing for those who believe. That's good. <clears throat> That's good. So I are, are you I do want to, uh, if, if you have a question, go ahead. But otherwise, I do want to sh- do a screen share yeah. and, and kind of show the parallels of this passage in a different format. That- no, that's good. We can put the screen share up there. Let's see if we can get it okay. to work in. But I, I, I think those those are good points. Good. I really like how you were pointing out the justification of life in verse 18. Um, I, I think that's a key to the conversation. And then obviously we're, we're looking at the distinction between all and many. And uh, at the end of the day, I mean, we're looking at the two categories of one salvation through the atonement and salvation and which would be the resurrection of the body and then that the second aspect of that would be the element of faith which would separate the believer from the non-believer and having the righteousness in in verse 18 where it says by the righteousness of the one um then you've got the free gift or the gift the gift the grace gift um in verse 17 or verse 18 there so that's good. Yeah. I, so is my screen being shown here? No, not yet. Uh, well, I clicked to share. Oh, my, oh, I forgot to... I, I got to actually uh, pick my display and tell it to share there. <laughs> there we go. We got How's it. That? Now you got it? Okay. Yeah, we got her. So you can find this essentially in my dissertation also, although it's going to be scattered through the multiple pages of where I discuss... Romans chapter five, but I, I've kind of condensed it here. All these past, all these verses have an agent or a cause noted, and then they have who or what's affected. It may be explicit or maybe implied, and then it has the effects that it's that it talks about. And I just wanted to point out I've highlighted on here the the statements that relate to the death. So the first part is the yellow highlighting. They die, the grace of God abounds, the judgment under condemnation, the death that reigned, the abundance of the grace under condemnation, unto justification of life. So there we end in our resurrection that's related to the death that Adam caused that Christ fulfills for everybody. Then the cyan-colored highlighting there is the mention of the gift by grace that abounds, the gift, the grace gift unto justification in verse 16, Uh, verse 17, the gift of righteousness in life will be reigning. And then that's covered in verse 19. We were made sinners by nature, but now we will be made upright or righteous. So just wanted to point out how those parallel within the passage and you know looking at it this way really does help resolve because there's a lot of interpreters that struggle with that all and many uh in these verses the switching there and like i said some of them just try to ignore it and say that it's just uh just making a variety in the text but i think it's it matches everything we've discussed so far tonight that the fact yeah. that 1 Timothy 4.10 mentions something that was for all, 
the fact that 2 Corinthians 5 mentions something that was for the world, the fact that Ephesians talks about a couple of aspects splitting up difference between death and wrath and, and the things that are related to the, sal- the saving of those. So this is just another passage that shows the split distinction of things that are occurring in this process of salvation. And so part of the process is such that it's universal. And part of the process, the final and finishing part of the process is the particular for those that believe. So I've got a question for you. Now, why would it be why would it be necessary to have the atonement of Christ in order to have a resurrection? Why can't you just have a resurrection and and the atonement be completely uh, disconnected from that resurrection, whether it's associated with the just or the unjust? Uh, I, I covered this a little bit last week, but it, it has to do with the fact that it was God's penalty. God's the one that said death was a penalty for sin. So it would be unrighteous for him to go back on his penalty for without a just cause to be able to to go back on it you know in other words it had to get paid uh and it would have resulted in our eternal death if if he had let it alone so to speak he he would have left us in a state of death but that wasn't his intent he didn't he wasn't gonna let sin ruin his plans for humanity and what he had for his creation so he sent Christ. So it, it all has to do with God's righteousness in, in this aspect, that for him to, to remain righteous, in, he's the one that gave the penalty. If you were a judge and you're the one that created the law and the law said whatever you know, you're going to spend forever in jail— and then suddenly later on, the judge says, well, I'll let you out just because I feel like it. That would be, it, it might be a gracious thing of the judge, but it would not be a righteous thing of the judge. And so God has to be bold. He wants to show grace, but he's got to fulfill righteousness because he is righteous. And so therefore, uh, there had to be the payment made in order for people to be resurrected i guess i could stop sharing so you can actually see me (laughs) you see me again i got you (laughs) all right so that that would be my argument there and then this passage i think explicitly states it um because of the term used there is a is that particular term that's a different term for justification which i like i said i described more in my dissertation about that but now tell us one more time if if anyone wants to have access to your dissertation where can, where can they find it? Uh, they can find my dissertation on academia.edu. Uh, it's a website for people to post academic papers, and uh, I posted my dissertation out there for free so that people that were interested in this could could read it. And that's how Josh found it and contacted me for the this whole podcast. Yeah, but. Uh, if you look up, if you look up the word pananastasism, you're for sure going to find it. Uh, P A N A N A S T A S I S M. 
you could probably find it under Scott Smith, but I don't know how many Scott Smiths you might have to weed through before, <laughs> before you would. <laughs> it's not it. a common name at all. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> so right. that's all I have for tonight, but I don't know. You might want to throw some more stuff at me. I, I've got one more question, and then I've got one more comment, and then we can wrap it up for the night. So this is going to be in relation to the uh, particular aspect under Owen's Owen's um, uh, model, he, and he's answering the question, for whom did Christ die? And uh, here's, here's what he says. I, I won't take too much time reading it, but he says, the, the Father imposed his wrath due unto, and the Son underwent punish, punishment for either, one, all the sins of all men, two, all the sins of some men, or, number three, some of the sins of all men. In which case it may be said, A, that if the last be true, all men have some sins to answer for, and so none are saved. B, that if the second be true, then Christ and their stead suffered for all the sins of all the elect in the whole world, and this is the truth. C, but if the first be the case, why are not all men uh, free from the punishment due unto their sins? You answer because of unbelief, I ask. Is this unbelief a sin, or is it not? If it be, then Christ suffered the punishment due unto it, or he did not. If he did, why must that hinder them more than their, their other sins for which he died? If he did not, he did not die for all their sins, exclamation point. So, uh, the whole point, my response, and, and, and I think you've heard Scott's response to this as well, um, it's a resounding, uh, a resounding response saying those are not the only options. I think there's another option here. And, and I think the option that Owen missed, and he's so close to getting, and I think that so many people are so close to getting, whether you're on the provisional side like I was, or you're on the particular side like I considered and fought so hard saying, I see the effectual point that Owen is making here when it comes to an actual transaction and, and what sins are atoned for. Um, but I, I, I think for me personally, and I think Scott will get your take on it, but where is Owen missing it, and how? Where where can he find the answer within uh, what what? I mean, you've been laying out for us for three nights now. <laughs> well, actually, we kind of covered this a little bit when I talked about Gary Williams last week, because uh, I'd mentioned that he was essentially making a similar statement as John Owens. Now, I think I think you had a graphic of that. Is there any way you can get that graphic up on and share it on the screen? Yeah, give me just a second. If you want to elaborate a little bit, I'll pull that up there. Yeah. Uh, The the first statement, and you'll see it on the graphic that shows the wording of, of Owen there, but he makes a statement about the wrath of God in this uh, transaction that's occurred. And as I've stated before, uh, I don't believe that the wrath of God is upon Christ on the cross, that Christ was fulfilling the legal obligation for humanity, and he was enduring the punishment of sin, but he was not under God's wrath for that, uh, in in my view. And I don't think, I, I have yet to find a scripture that indicates that that the wrath of God is ever upon Christ. So it, he, I think he goes wrong right there already, but I don't blame him because there's a lot of people that I think go wrong on that point. So, Have you found the graphic? It's, uh, 
It's loading. Be- I had to open up my program here. I've got uh, part part one. I'm waiting for part two to show up. It's syncing because it's on my um, it's on my cloud. So give me just a oh, second, and I'll pull that up for you guys. I mean, ultimately, obviously, I fall under the his first category that he paid for the sins of all people. It's just that the dilemma that he he makes is. It's fall and and we discussed this somewhat earlier already in this podcast because one of your early questioners was talking about the whole idea of Owen's razor and unbelief. So in that sense, we already address the fact that they're not being judged on unbelief. Um, that's that's the reason they have God's wrath still upon them, but it's not because of a judgment upon unbelief. It's because they don't have the righteousness applied to them. So. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't, for whatever reason, I'm not, even. it's, it's not, not coming sh- up. No. And maybe next time I'll, I'll make okay. sure and have that prepared and I'll pull it right up. But yeah, it's not loading on, on the cloud. Every, every other one of my notes from the cloud loaded in here, but for whatever reason, that one's not. So, uh, next time we will right, cause it was a graphic. Oh yeah. It's like, you know, this has got to work out that way, but well, so, uh, Owen's statement, um, let's see his, so I, I go with his first choice that he paid, he paid the sins of all men and then reread what he says. If I choose a of his choices, what does he say is then is the issue? Uh, a is, he says, uh, that if the last be true, all men have some sins to answer for, and so none are saved. Uh, maybe it wasn't A then. Oh, you're saying, okay. Let's see. Uh, point one is all the sin. So he says, the father imposed his wrath due unto, and the son under- underwent punishment for either one, all the sins of all men, two. All okay, that's one, all the sins of all men. But then I, I think it. he then goes backwards with his ABC. So maybe it's C statement that addresses the first uh, the first um, point, if I remember correctly. Now I'm going to pull this up on the screen, so should be able to see Oh, it you now. did get it. I found it. Except Yay. it's not showing me the full screen. Why is that not doing that? There we go. Can you see that? I'm, I'm not, not seeing, seeing it yet. yet. Uh, well, uh, if you're viewing live, you should be able to see it. So I've I've got it up on the full screen. So that figures. I, I want, want to look, look at it. it. <laughs> uh, let me share my screen with you. I can make that happen. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> Let's see. I'll click there. Start sharing. Well, I see me. Good. All right. Let's switch back to <laughs> there. Can you see that? Okay. Scott? Yes. Right. Okay. okay. So, so he, he says, he likes it. He walks backwards once he gets through his ABCs. So, uh, so I already said that the father imposed his wrath due unto. And I would disagree with that. But I do agree that the son underwent punishment for all the sins of all men. So I, I pick number one for the three points that, that he gives. And then C, 
But if the first be the case, so he's going back to that point one, why are not all men free from the punishment due under their sins? And my answer to that is they are. <laughs> the, the punishment, the legal punishment, they are going to be free from. That's the resurrection. And he is trying to anticipate the answer as being because of unbelief, and I'm, that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether you believe or not, you're going to be resurrected. Yeah. And uh, the, sin of, the, the unbelief itself, yes, it is a sin, but it's the results of unbelief that's the problem, which is the fact that they never gain the righteousness, the positive side of things. So in one sense, you can say that the legal aspect of the punishment is, is the negative side of things. They were punished for the, legally for the transaction of sins that, that we've done. But in one sense, we, being resurrected in and of itself just brings us back to zero, or so to speak. Uh, we still don't have all that positive righteousness that God designed us to have to reflect him, to be righteous. So without that, then there's the, the issue of wrath and, um, and they still have that sinfulness. That is, that is that's an issue. A, a buddy of mine and I were talking about that uh, last week after episode two. And I've got a question I'm going to ask you, but I'm going to ask you when, whenever we end the podcast. And then if you decide uh, next week, uh, whenever we do uh, episode four, part four for this series, maybe we can say, Hey, you know what? We're going to talk about that. But I, it's not really relevant to this particular conversation, so I'm going to save that one, but I got a question for you. So, Anyways, okay. now if, I want to give you a chance to, to summarize what we were going through in this particular episode, what we were, what we were attempting to accomplish, and then I'm going to wrap it up and, and we'll close it out for the night. Well, in this episode, I wanted to point out some, some key scriptures that, that show the the two aspects of salvation within them and in many cases the that that show the two issues that there are so the physical death issue and then the wrath issue or our sinfulness issue which is what is the cause of the wrath against us and so we need both to be freed from the penalty of sin our death and then we need to be cleansed of our sinfulness so that our relationship can be restored with God. And, and that's kind of what, why I chose these particular passages uh, tonight for, for this. That's awesome. I, I really appreciate you com coming on again, Scott. And uh, I mean, it's, it, it takes a lot of work to prepare and, and a lot of work to, I mean, even, even everything that you put in with the dissertation to, to kind of break these categories down. I think that this has been really beneficial for myself and hopefully for you guys who are viewing at home um, or if you're listening on an audio podcast and, and you've got a question or you've got a comment and you want to get in touch with us, you can do that. Uh, just reach out to us on Facebook. It's it's me personally, my personal Facebook, Joshua Gibbs. You'll be able to find me on there on Twitter at the real J Gibbs. Um, go to uh, what else is it? Um, YouTube, you can find us talking Christianity. Any audio podcast, you can find us talking Christianity apologetics, and um, you're, we're on Periscope and Twitter. Every basically anything you can think of. If there's something that you want us to be on that we're not, just let us know, and we'll we'll do what we can to get on there. But um, Scott, thanks again for coming on. And uh, thanks for what, having me. What is going to be the plan for episode four? Do we have anything that we're 
that we're setting out to accomplish there yet? Well, I'm not entirely sure yet. Um, okay. There's different directions we could go. So uh, I don't know, maybe some of the questions that this podcast elicits might send us in one direction or another. I don't know. Uh, let's work. see. That's what, what day is that's Tuesday this next week. Is that right? Or I'm it just, I'd have to look at my calendar. I do think I think off the top of my head. Uh, yeah. Tuesday is what we're looking at. Okay. So. All right. But anyway, so uh, what was I going to say? There was something else. I don't know. Been a long day. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it. So anyways, <laughs> have a good night, Scott. I'm going to go to my closing scene here and uh, All right. we'll wrap it up. Everyone have a good night. Okay. So that'll be episode three, guys. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, we really appreciate it. This podcast, it seems to be growing. It seems like uh, there's there's more interest. And we're it, it, it looks like between the views and, and the audio podcast, we're getting anywhere between two and 4,000 uh, views and listens per episode. So that I think that's a good thing. It shows that you guys um, are interested in the conversation and the, and, and the discussion. Um, just let us know. I mean, we got into more of the scriptural support tonight. Um, give us your feedback and we'll, we'll be more than happy to engage. So that's good. October uh, 30th, we've got Jeff Riddle coming on. We're going to talk about the confessional text, uh, uh, the ecclesiastical text or whatever, whatever you want to call that um, particular movement. But that's going to be a really good conversation. I'm looking forward to that. I, I think that Scott got into it a little bit tonight uh, in Ephesians chapter 5 and some of the different variations uh, and some of the forms of, of words and, and, and the order of, of words based off of the original text, how it's translated into the English language. That's going to kind of be the conversation that Jeff Riddle and I are going to get into and why that's an important discussion to have. Uh, and then we'll have James Snap on. He's kind of, he's planning on coming on in uh, November, I believe, the second week of November. So he's got kind of a different perspective than Jeff Riddle does, um, but it's going to be a good conversation as well. So be sure to stay tuned for that. And um, that's all we've got for tonight. So God bless and have a good evening. Later.